We're in 2 Samuel chapter 12. We're going to read verses 26 through 31. I am going to be taking up all of chapter 13. I'm not going to be reading that through in its entirety, but we're going to survey it and walk us through it a little bit later in the service. So 2 Samuel 12, we'll read verse 26 all the way to verses 31. Now Joab fought against Rabbah of the people of Ammon and took the royal city. And Joab sent messengers to David and said, I fought against Rabbah and I've taken the city's water supply. Now therefore gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it, lest I take the city and it be called after my name. So David gathered all the people together and went to Rabbah, fought against it and took it. Then he took their king's crown from his head. Its weight was a talent of gold with precious stones, and it was set on David's head. Also, he brought out the spoil of the city in great abundance, and he brought out the people who were in it and put them to work with saws and iron picks and iron axes and made them cross over to the brickworks. So he did to all the cities of the people of Ammon. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures Let's go to the Lord and thank him for his word this morning. Gracious Father, we do praise your name through the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you this morning for meeting with us, for granting us every single blessing in him. Thank you for the word of Christ, which has been sung and prayed and read, confessed even. Father, we ask that you would come now and continue that work of renewing our minds and shaping and fashioning our hearts, transforming us more and more into the image of your Son. We thank you for your faithfulness in this work and for the confidence that you've given us that you will bring it to completion. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. All right. I've got a question for you to open this morning. Would you, if you could, would you vote for King David for president of these United States of America. He's on the ballot. It's 2024. Would you cast your vote for David? I know what you're thinking. What are his views on inflation and economic policy? Um, Right. Fortunately, we're not given that, but we're looking at his character. Just keep that question in mind. As we move through this, because actually one of the things that chapter 12 does for us is chapter 12 actually paints a picture for us. And we would always do well to remember that saying that a picture is worth a thousand words, right? So I want us to take up and glean from uh, chapter 12 what we might, because chapter 12 really does prepare us for the atrocities we find in chapter 13, And I think one of the things that actually helps us is to recognize the similar structures found in 2 Samuel chapters 5 through 8 and 2 Samuel chapters 10 through 12, okay? They're similar structures of these two sections of Scripture are going to be very important. So that's the first thing we're going to look at. Similar structures of 2 Samuel 5 through 8 and 10 through 12. Both of those in chapter 5 and chapter 10 begin with fighting, with great battle. And then in the middle of that first section in chapters 5 through 8, you encounter David's failure with the ark. David's sin involved with that and the death of Uzzah. And then his humble obedience, obedient response in the ark being brought into Jerusalem. 
Then we follow that with the covenant made with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. The Lord making a covenant with David and, and blessing the house of David and David's response to the promise of a son. And in fact, then we look at the middle section of chapter 10. We know chapter 10 also starts with a battle, but the middle section of chapter 10 records David's failure or David's sin with Bathsheba and David's horrific disobedient response in the killing of Uriah. And therefore, it's followed not by the blessing of the house of David, but the curse that falls upon the house of David. And his response, not to the promise of a son, but his response to the death of a son. Both in chapter 8 and chapter 12 end with more fighting. And in the end of this section in chapter 12, we've got our fourth fighting scene. That's what we come to. So we got one at the beginning of chapter 5, one at the uh, end of chapter 8, another in chapter 10, and now the conclusion of the battle that began in chapter 10 here in chapter 12. And, And the reason why I want you to think about these structures, and I brought that up to your attention, is because one of the things more broadly speaking when we're studying the scripture that we need to learn very, uh, almost immediately, is that similar structures like this always invite comparison, Always. They always invite us to compare. When we see the similarity of these structures, the author is inviting us to compare these two accounts. And what we do when we compare 5 through 8 and 10 through 12 is it reveals a decline that I want to draw to our attention. So again, back in chapter 5, right? You've got those two major battles, both against the Philistines. But what's important about both of those battles is we see David is inquiring of the Lord. You remember that? The Lord instructs David what to do, and and then the Lord is really the warrior king who goes out and defeats the Philistines with David by his side. Okay, so then we go to the second battle scene in chapter 8, right? Chapter 8's a slightly different picture, but it's still positive. David goes forth and he conquers the Philistines, first tying it back to chapter 5. Then he goes and conquers the surrounding nations to the east, to the south, to the west, and to the north. All those nations are defeated. And it's said twice in the passage of chapter 8 that the Lord is the one who gives David the victory. So, so that's the bracket of the first section, right? David inquires the Lord, victorious battle. Then the Lord is with David, grants him victory, and it's victorious battle in chapter 8. Now we move to the section, second section of chapters 10 through 12. Chapter 10 records the first battle scene. And what do we find in that first battle scene in chapter 10? David not going to battle, David sending Joab out. In fact, the Lord is almost completely absent from that passage, except from the lips of Joab, who confesses a trust in the Lord in the midst of the battle with David. So if it wasn't for Joab, we would not even have heard the name of the Lord, Yahweh, mentioned at all in chapter 10. Then we move to chapter 12, the battle we're looking at now, where Joab is once again out conquering without David. He doesn't make it all the way into the heart of the city, but he does the majority majority of the conquering. 
In fact, the city's about to call. So what does he do? He whistles for David. I can't whistle, and you're probably very thankful I can't. Uh, but he, he whistles for David. He needs to come. Come on, or, or else Joab's going to receive the glory, and the city will be named after Joab and not David. So David comes. David gets all the credit for the, Lord, for the battle, and the Lord, again, is completely and entirely absent. Did you see anything mentioned in the Lord in chapter 12? Certainly not. So, okay, we compared them, but what does it tell us? What does it tell us now that these two sections of Scripture are comparable? Well, I think one thing it tells us is that David is subduing the nations, okay? That's one thing that is clear here, and if we know the story, we know that's a big deal. David is subduing the nations. If you look at verses 26 through 31, and David capturing Rabbah, he takes the crown off the king's head. There's a transfer of power from the king of the Ammonites to King David himself. He brings out the spoil. He subjects the people. This is military victory, right? On any horizontal plane, we would say when it comes to war, if you're on David's side, this is how you'd want that thing to end, wouldn't you? The picture is of David conquering the nations. Since chapter 5, that's exactly what we've seen. David and Israel have known nothing but victory in every single battle recorded since then. So if one's worldview... Get this, if one's worldview is that the nations are the problem, then we're actually working uphill here, aren't we? This is good news. If you're convinced that the Philistines, the Hivites, the Amorites, the Amalekites, etc., that's Israel's biggest problem, then the end of chapter 12, it is all good because David is subduing the problem. So things are good in Israel, right? Well, not exactly. Because another thing we see is we see the movement from chapter 5 to chapter 8, from chapter 10 to chapter 12. The movement reveals two things. The first I've already mentioned, that David on the surface is militarily successful. The other, more subtle revelation is that David has changed. Hasn't he? Don't we see that from these four battles? David has changed. Who is this guy who started out in chapter 5 inquiring of the Lord at every decision and at every turn and then chapter 12 is waiting for Joab to go ahead and do it without him so he can come and get the credit? David's no longer inquiring of the Lord. And the narrator is pointing out to us that the Lord is giving, or he's actually not pointing out to us any longer that the Lord's giving David success. In fact, David is starting to look eerily like the king of the nations. David's declining away from the humble dependence we see in chapter 5, isn't he? He's declining away from proper image bearing. He's declining away from faithful obedience. This is preparing us. It's preparing us for what's about to take place in chapters 13 through 20. So let's go ahead and move to chapter 13 where we see... The real problem. What we see here are symptoms of a deeper problem we'll get to eventually. And we actually see a similar structure even in chapter 13 itself, which we're going to get to in a bit. The similar structures are found in 2 Samuel 13, 1 through 21 and 22 through 39. We can summarize chapter 13 like this. Chapter 13 records a movement of two of David's sons from assault to revenge. 
I'm going to use the term assault for what takes place in chapter 13, mind you, because I know it's Family Sunday, even though it's more. But I'm trying my best here, okay? So if we're looking, get this, if we're looking for a righteous kingdom, this ain't it, right? Let's walk through it quickly, and if you're not familiar with it, here's what happens. David's third son, Absalom, has a beautiful sister. Her name is Tamar, and after a time, Amnon, David's firstborn son, loved her. So Amnon wants Tamar physically, and he realizes, though, he can't have her until one of his friends, Jonadab, a crafty man, tells him just how he can go about getting her. He just has to play sick, lay in bed. And when his father comes to check on him, he tells his father he'd really like Tamar to come tend to him, to come help him, serve him food, cook it up, and even feed it to him. He hears, agrees with, and executes the plan. Indeed, he takes Tamar forcibly. And after taking her, we actually read in verse 15 of chapter 13 these words. Then Amnon hated her exceedingly. So that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, Arise, be gone. So she gets up, she exits, she tears her robe of many colors. Only other person in the entire Bible to have a robe of many colors other than Joseph. She goes to her brother Absalom who receives her and he apparently knows. He asked her this in verse 20. And Absalom, her brother, said to her, Has Amnon, your brother, been with you? But now hold your peace, my sister. He's your brother. Do not take this thing to heart. So Tamar remained desolate in her brother's Absalom's house. But when King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. And church family, that's all we get from David. Angry at who? We don't even know. Is he angry at himself for sending Tamar to Amnon? Is he angry at Amnon? Is he just angry at this whole situation? It's very, very ambiguous. David's angry though. Absalom, on the other hand, hated Amnon with a silent, brooding, growing hatred that boils over at just the right moment in deception and murder. He asked his father to come to a sheep shearing feast he's holding. His father says, no, he can't go. But he continues to implore him. So David allows Amnon to go as well as his other sons. They go. And after getting Amnon all drunk and merry, he has his servants kill him. So we read in verse 29. Then all the king's sons arose and each one got on his mule and fled. Then Jonadab comes back and he's counseling David, explaining that, no, not all your sons are dead. It's just Amnon alone who has died, which he immediately thought all that, all, that they all had died. So notice also that David's grieving here. He hears the reports of the death of his sons. He tears his robe and he grieves. But you remember Jonadab? Jonadab, the one who devised the plan for Amnon, is also the one who's standing next to David, counseling him. Absalom flees to his grandfather's country, Geshur, and there he lives in exile. And here's how the passage closes in verses 37 through 39. But Absalom fled and went to Tolmai, the son of Amahud, king of Geshur. And David mourned for his son every day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there three years. And King David longed to go to Absalom, for he had been comforted concerning Amnon because he was dead. 
It's the third record of Amnon's death in the chapter. Amnon is dead, dead, and dead. That's most of the content of the chapter we have. That's chapter 13 in a nutshell, a quick survey. In fact, one commentator, Victor Hamilton, points out that what we have here, again, are these two parallel passages, verses 1 through 21 and 22 through 39. More parallels here, which invites more comparison. Amnon invites Tamar to be with him physically, but she refuses. Absalom invites David to come to the sheep shearing fest, but he refuses. Tamar responds with a double refusal. No, my brother, do not force me. David responds with a double refusal. No, my son, let us not all go. Jonadab counsels Amnon and Amnon accepts his counsel. Jonadab counsels David and his knowledge turns out to be accurate. The way to set up Tamar focuses on food and eating. The way to set up Amnon is a feast, food and eating. Amnon says to Tamar after she's been physically abused... Do not take this thing to heart. Absalom does. <coughs> Excuse me. Jonadab, after informing David of Amnon's death, says to David, Now therefore, do not let my lord the king take the thing to his heart. See the parallelism? In grief, Tamar tears her clothes. In grief, David tears his clothes. And so we have two sections here, one that mirrors another. One telling the story of assault, the other telling the story of revenge and exile. Two parallel sections. And essentially, the chapter as a whole is just depicting the evil corruption and violence of the house of David. Victor Hamilton astutely asked this question. thought it was poignant. If God's heart was pained and he was grieved when he saw... In Noah's day, an earth that was evil, corrupt, and full of violence. How did his heart feel when he looked at the house of David and again saw evil, corruption, and violence? Maybe really in in order to answer that question, would you vote for David for president of the United States? You'd have to ask yourself, which David, right? David of chapter 5 or David of chapter 13? The reality, friends, is what we find here is a very old, familiar story. It's the story of sin abounding. And two things about sin really come to the forefront through not just this passage, but seeing this passage in parallel with some of the other passages. One of the first things that we see about sin is this. The the physical, typical, temporary fulfillment of covenant promises, it has not produced the kingdom of God on earth. Has it? David, remember, is is the one guy, probably more than other, that has inherited the typical, temporary, physical covenant fulfillment promises. And yet, it has not produced the kingdom of God on earth. So you have the conquering of the nations, but no one is going to read chapter 13 and say, There it is! There's the kingdom of God! The second thing I want us to see, we'll look at these both back to back here. Second thing is actually that the diagnosis seems as if things aren't getting better, but that they're actually degrading, (laughs) right? They're, They're actually even getting worse. There's a sense in which we don't really need to compare other passages to say that the establishment of the throne of David has not established the kingdom of God. We can actually just take up chapter 13 and say amen to that. But when we see the parallels with how it coincides with other Old Testament narratives, the message becomes louder and clearer. 
The most obvious parallel would be Genesis 34. I don't know if you're familiar with that text. It's the record of Dinah, Jacob's daughter, being taken by Shechem as he forced her and lay with her. Use the same two verbs there in Genesis 34 in what Amnon does to Tamar. Not only that, in verse 7 of Genesis 34, we read, Because he had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, a thing which ought not to be done. And then we hear from the lips of Tamar in our chapter, in verse 12. For no such thing should be done in Israel. Do not do this disgraceful thing. Same words in the Hebrew. Jacob has only one named daughter, Dinah. Tamar is David's only named daughter. The narratives themselves obviously are very similar. A father is upset, but the father is silent and inactive. A son or sons are very angry and very active. Deception is used to set up the guilty party in order to kill the guilty party. The account ends with a family feud in Genesis 34, as ours does as well. It's small and subtle, but the father is upset at the sons because they have done such a thing. And the sons fire back, should our sister be treated as a harlot? Once again, correspondence invites comparison. Listen, I'm going to keep reminding us that, that what we have right here is not 66 books, right? It's one book that consists of 66 books, <laughs> It's one unified story. The author of Samuel, whether you want to refer to the human author or divine author, is well aware of what took place in Genesis 34. He's well aware of the parallels. In fact, it's intentional. And so the correspondence invites comparison. The parallels are clear. But what's the point? See, Israel may have received the Sinaitic covenant with its rules, covenant of Sinai. Which, remember, according to Deuteronomy chapter 4, was actually going to cause the nations to say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us? And yet here we are, in 2 Samuel 13, almost a half a millennium later, in Israel, represented by the house of David, is recapitulating the, the sin of Shechem. Do you see that? Now, here's what's interesting. Interesting is the sin back in Genesis 34 is right here too, but it's, but it's actually worse. And I know that you're saying, how could something so heinous actually be worse? Because there's actually an escalation between those two passages. If you haven't read Genesis 34, go back and do it. Shechem does humiliate Dinah. Nothing ever obviously excuses that in any way, shape, or form. Nothing makes that okay and better. But we have to hear what the text tells us. And the text actually tells us that he loved her. That he spoke tenderly to her afterwards that he wanted to marry her. He begged Jacob for favor. In fact, he begged his father to arrange the marriage, offering to pay Jacob whatever bride price you ask. He delighted sincerely in Jacob's daughter. Again, this has nothing to do with the rightness of... Of Shechem, there's no need to paint this dude in a good light in any way, shape, or form. But the contrast is what we have to see. This is Shechem. This is a Hivite. This is the enemy of God's people. He doesn't have the law. He hasn't covenanted with the Lord. He doesn't know the Lord's personal name. He did a horrible thing, and afterwards he loved her. He was willing to become one of the Israelites. 
Whatever you ask, we will do. So what did they ask for? Circumcisions. And they did. The entire city and every man in the city was circumcised. And they did so to make them weak so that Simeon and Levi could come in to that very town and kill every last male plundering the city. Remember the contrast is what we're after here. So now we look at Amnon's response. Tamar responds to Amnon afterwards, don't make me go. She actually says to him, that would actually be a greater sin than the first. But what does the text tell us? That Amnon hated her with more hatred than he loved her? He says, get up, go. He has his servants come in and take her forcibly outside, close the door and lock it. So again, both are terrible situations. But it appears that the son of David is actually worse than Shechem, the son of Hamar. All this to say that there's not just a parallel here. There's actually an escalation, which is common. The author's again inviting us to make a comparison. And so one of the most striking lessons is, is the physical redemption of Israel from Egypt, the covenant of Mount Sinai, the fulfillment of God's promises of the land, the children and presence of God has not really transformed Israel into a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Lust Deception and hate are still very much alive and well in Israel. Even in the house of David, which is supposed to represent the household of God. Don't miss this, because here's the point. The problem is clearly not then the Hivites, the Canaanites, the Ammonites, whom David has conquered and subdued. The problem is internal. The problem is inside of Israel, not out. David, for all the blessings he's been given, hasn't advanced the story one step past good old silent Jacob, who allows his daughter to be treated like a harlot. It feels to me like a bit of a project. Um, And I know when I say project and the men in here say project, we probably have two different ideas. But let's just say there's a washing machine that's broken and needs fixing, right? If you're a real man, you know what you're doing. You have at least some idea. If you're me, you have to Google immediately um, what possibly could be wrong with those things, right? All right, so there's a real project. You have a list of things that might be wrong with the washing machine. And so you methodically go through that checklist and attempt to fix the washing machine one at a time. But each fix just, just doesn't correct the problem at all. You know, maybe what we really need is a, is, a, is a king like all the nations. Well, that doesn't really correct the problem. Maybe what we need is just to bring the people out of Egypt, physical slavery. What we need is a new relationship with the Lord created by the covenant of Mount Sinai. Problem is, washing machine's still broke. It's almost like you're sitting in front of the washing machine. You finally think you've just got it fixed. It's David. Of course it's David. He conquered the nations. His kingdom's established. Things are good in Israel. Surely it's going to work now. And so you plug it in, and then the whole thing just engulfs into flames. I mean, listen, chapter 11 is bad, right? Uriah, Bathsheba, that's bad. Chapters 13 through 20 are abysmal. But there's more. I I won't take us to Genesis 37 with the allusion to the coat of many colors, but you guys can do the math quick, I'm sure. Abusive brothers, tearing of a garment. I'll bypass that matter, but I do want to take us to Judges 19. Because in one sense, 
it seems like a clear parallel because there's two accounts of assault. I'm going I'm to take a little more time to show us the parallels the author wants us to see. Judges chapter 20 verse 13. But the children of Benjamin would not listen to the voice of their brethren, the children of Israel. Verse 14 of our text. However, he would not heed her voice to Tamar. The Levite says to his recently assaulted concubine, get up and let's get going. In Judges 19, verse 28, those are the same two words Amnon uses to Tamar when he says, get up, go. The assault is referred to as a vile thing in both passages. In Judges 19, no, my brethren, I beg you, do not act so wickedly. In verse 12 of our chapter, what does Tamar say? No, my brother, do not force me, for no such thing should be done in Israel. Do not do this disgraceful thing. Revenge for a crime ends with bloodbath and fratricide, which I think is a key connection. What we find in Judges 19 is what leads to the civil war in Israel and the almost wiping out of an entire tribe. These events clearly connect and they teach us that there's a very dark circle of apostasy that's just spiraling downward. One of the clear teachings of Judges is the problem is not with the other nations whom the Lord quickly conquers any time the people of Israel repent. The problem is with Israel because they're so quick to apostate. It's interesting, you know, when we read at the very end of the section we read in the scripture reading this morning in in 2 Samuel 12 verse 31, that text that says, then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. That is to the city of the king where remember the ark, very presence of God dwells. This should be a triumphant event. They just conquered the nations and they're coming back into Jerusalem. But it's just like the story we find in Judges 19. Where the reality is you're safer outside God's people than you are in God's people. There's a greater threat inside than out. So the reality is what this passage reminds us in 2 Samuel 13 is Israel's problem is Israel. That's Israel's problem. Israel's problem, it's Israel. You ready to apply that? Listen, the New Testament application for Israel's problem being Israel is not America's greatest problem is America, how true that may be. But friends, here's the application. You want to know what our greatest threat is? It's us. See, the problem is not flesh and blood. Are you greater than David? Are you? Because he fell hard. So so if your hope is to live a good life and honor the Lord in your own might, good luck. You better be better than David. Are you wiser than Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived? David's son, who's going to take the throne after him? He was known for his wisdom. Guess what he did? He fell hard. If you think you have the plan for being right with God, for living a good life, again, good luck. You better be better than Solomon. Your problem is not out there. Your problem is in here. It's so central to the biblical message that that you must be right now like, Pastor Cody, you don't have to tell us this. Of course we know that. No, you don't. No, you don't. Just think about how much of your life is spent thinking about problems external to yourself. 
Can I, are you already so sanctified, already so near glory, that you're so bored because it's too hard to find something inside of yourself to offer up to the Lord and ask for his help? Listen, their problem was not the Amorites, our problem's not the Democrats. It's not. You want to know what my biggest problem is? My biggest problem is my desires are twisted. I'm prideful. My problem is lust. I want things the Lord has not given me. My heart longs to take them anyway. I'm greedy. Like, really, I I really work hard to be as generous as I am, and that is in no way impressive. Each and every one of us are bent in on ourselves in such a way that we worship us. That we're tempted to constantly trust in us. And so the problem is not the nations. The problem is God's own people. Now hear this. Because, yes, there is a sense in which we could say the enemies of God are a real problem. But but here's the truth about that. The enemies of God are a real problem, but they are not my problem. What do I mean by that? I mean, God is dealing with the nations. He's subjecting the nation. According to Psalm 2, he laughs and holds them in derision so that they are always at work doing his will. He doesn't need me to go out and conquer a nation for him. He's got it. And I mean, listen, even if we did, right? Let's just go ahead and say that, that we subdued all the nations. We elected David as president, right? We instituted a Mosaic law as the law of the land, huh? Then it would be peachy keen, wouldn't it? I mean, let's just say we'd be every bit as good at that point as the whole nation of Israel is in 2 Samuel 13. Don't you see? This morning in this text, we're reminded that we are the biggest threat to us. In 2 Samuel, we, we've seen there's a disease, not just in the hearts of Amnon, Absalom, and David, but the disease actually works itself out into the family of David. And, and what I mean is, it, it's really easy for us to look out at the world and just to see how sinful it is. I mean, it's so depraved, Right? The way they're thinking is, is so twisted. Their desire is so perverted. But then we look in here. We consider the report that was dropped in the Southern Baptist Convention this week. Where it was found that the executive committee of the convention has for years covered up sexual abuse. Because they want fame. It's because they don't care about sin. We think we're better? We look in here, even just right here in our church. Let's ask, okay, are we loving each other the way we've been called to love one another? Or do we bite and devour one another? See, the problem is individual, but it's also corporate. By corporate, I mean within the people of God. And Judges, again, clearly illustrates this for us. The book begins with Israel fighting with the nations. And by the end of the book, it's civil war. By the end of the book, Israel kills more of Israel than they do the nations. 
All right, well, what about Samuel as a whole? Remember 1st and 2nd Samuel, it's the same story. And, and, and think about this, just think about 1st Samuel, right? We start out with these, with these Philistines and they're presented to us as this great enemy. Oh my goodness, they, they're terrible. There's a threat and they need to be taken care of. But then what's the majority of the rest of the book of 1st Samuel about? Saul, an Israelite, trying to kill who? David, another Israelite. It's everywhere. This is not really, at the end of the day, a story about Israel rising up and conquering the nations. It's a story about God raising up Israel and Israel conquering themselves. Why? Because of their hard, unrepentant hearts that divide and devour one another. Because they are the greatest threat to their neighbor. And church, listen, the reason why I'm hounding this so hard is because if we don't see this, then clearly we'll never learn from it. If we don't see this, in fact, then Jesus Christ is obscured from our view. We miss the fullest meaning of the text. Israel has a disease in her heart and it's consuming her. It was growing and not diminishing. And as we come to 2 Samuel 13, it's spreading, not in remission. The doctor of our souls is presenting us at First Baptist Church of Grey Gables with a diagnosis this morning. We see the stage of cancer that moves to assault, that moves to revenge and to exile. One son dead, one in exile, and the father grieving. This is the trajectory of all who trust in the flesh and refuse to hear the word of the Lord, which says, you are sick. Isn't that what he says? Yes, you are sick. But he also says, come to me and I will heal you. Find your healing in me. This passage and the history that follows, friends, it just demonstrates our hopeless state. We are weak. We're vulnerable. And really, the entire Old Testament just exposes the need for a new heart. It clearly reveals that we all fall short of the glory of God. And no son of Adam, not even great King David, is able to cure our disease and establish the kingdom of heaven on earth. Jesus is the only man, God incarnate, who could cure our disease. And in the fullness of time, God sent forth the Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, and then also us Gentiles. And Jesus upheld in the law its righteousness and assumed our cancer by taking the curse of our transgressions upon himself, satisfying the debt that you and I owe to God. We saints, therefore, were crucified with Christ, raised with him and seated with him in the heavenly places. The kingdom of God, the rule of Christ has now dawned in us. But we're still waiting its consummation, right? So what does that mean? This morning in the preaching of God's word, you are reminded that you are terminally ill with an incurable wound apart from Christ. That God sent forth his son to heal us completely in the forgiveness of sins. We have been transferred, therefore, from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved son. Praise be to God. Yet the kingdom hasn't been consummated. See, see, we're cured of the disease, but we've still got lingering symptoms. What Christ did was sufficient and, and completely, it was actually complete, leaving nothing undone for God's people. It brings the fullness of our salvation and complete healing. 
He didn't leave 1% for you to work out on your own. Praise Him. Yet, we're not symptom-free, folks. Our symptoms linger. We're no longer under God's wrath. Instead, all we know, of course, is His love, grace, and mercy. But we're not symptom-free. Lust, lies, and loathing still exist in our flesh. We are prone to the very same errors that we've seen this morning from 2 Samuel 13. We're still vulnerable. In fact, lust, lies, and loathing are the symptoms that remind us of just how sick we were. That's exactly what they are. Those symptoms, they serve to remind you how sick you used to be with that incurable wound. Headed towards hell, separated from God forever and ever. Every time you experience a symptom, you can remember that's what you were. But praise be to God, He's cured us. Something else, lust, lies, and loathing that remains in us also reminds us, and it's this. Lust, lies, and loathing also reminds us, but by the grace of God go I. Remember, Jesus didn't cure us just to send us on our way. He is our very health. He didn't sprinkle a little health on us, pat us on the behind, and then say, good luck. He said, come to me for healing. He bids us come and abide in him. The reality is too many of us treat Jesus like he just shows up for your once a day medicine, gives you a pill, you pop it and then go on your merry way. Listen, we don't all have the same symptoms to the same degree. Some of us need to hear again this morning that Jesus says, come. Come and abide. Come and rest. Come to know. Come and grow. Jesus is our life, our vision, our refuge. Or to put it this way, Jesus is our daily, constant treatment to our problem. That's who he is. Friends, there's no taking the IV out. Those who have ears, let them hear. You are still sick, but cured. Still weak, but full of God's strength. Still wandering through... The desert, though Jesus will never leave you. This morning I invite you to look at Amnon and say, but by the grace of God go I. That you look at Absalom and say, but by the grace of God go I. That you look at David and say, but by the grace of God go I. And where is that grace found? It's only found in Jesus Christ. We church are still our biggest threat. It's not politicians, deep state or Democrats. It's me and you. It's our unwillingness to love one another. It's our propensity to slander one another, to bite and devour one another, to refuse to put the needs of others before our own. We are still our biggest threat. I've got like a billion New Testament texts I would want to go to. But let's just say this. If you love Jesus, then love his people. If you know that he's the cure, that you have all things in him, if you're abiding in him, then understand you're free to love. So do so boldly. Faithfully. I know, I, I, but I would, Pastor Cody, be such a jerk. So are you. <laughs> you are. I love you. I say that in love and in grace and mercy because I too am a jerk. Y'all have known me for so long. You know that to be the fact, right? Friends, beloved, stop biting Christ's body. 
Stop devouring his people. So we need to repent corporately together. Go to your brother and tell them if you've offended them. If you have, go to your sister and confess you've been wronged by her. If you have, seek the Lord together. Stop grieving the spirit of Christ who unites us. This message requires a response. If you have a grievance with your brother and sister, it's time to reconcile. In conclusion, Israel conquered the nations without, but they were conquered by their sin within. This was written to show us our terminal illness, the futility of our rebellion, and the hopelessness of any son of Adam to cure our incurable wound. This passage instead points us to the heart of Christ, so that we might look to the Messiah and having heard his gospel, we believe on him. But this passage also warns us of the lies, lust, and loathing that still infect our hearts. It warns us to recognize that we we are our own biggest problem. Individually and corporately. So how do we respond? We cling to Christ. We confess our sin. We reconcile with the brethren. And we labor to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Just as the word of Christ commands us. Would you stand together as we close? Gracious Father, you know our weakness. Lord, would you please help your people? Grant us grace to seek the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. That objective unity that we have found in your Son, Jesus, would you help to make it manifest as we confess our sins to one another? As we forgive and love one another in tangible ways? And Father, we simply cannot do this without your grace. We cannot do this without the work of your Spirit here among us. We are completely dependent upon your movement. So we submit ourselves to you. We cry out for help and trust that you'll be pleased to answer this prayer in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.